Section 25 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Section 25, Chapter 14b, The Cold War and Seven Small Wars, Part 2. The End of the Cold War. If the hypothesis set forth above, namely, that the Cold War may turn out to be unendable war, except in terms which no living man can visualize, it may be true that appreciation of the role of psychological warfare, whatever it may later be called, in this struggle may have to wait a few more years. One factor often overlooked on the American side has been the limitation of the originators. Propaganda, to be effective among foreign peoples or foreign armies, cannot and should not outrun the strategic capabilities or the political intentions of the issuing power. It does no good for an American propaganda radio to pledge battle to the death while the U.S. press services amiably discuss an accommodation with the communists. Comparably, an official propaganda plan to make the people of France feel that the Americans love and admire them is not very realistic if, in terms of column inches of French press material, unofficial American utterances are related to France to the effect that the French are washed up, their cause in Indochina hopeless, their economy unviable, and their political goals foolish. The years 1950 through 54, during which the Korea struggle took place and in which NATO and the European Defense Community, EDC, came to prominence, often showed a proclivity on the part of U.S. official propagandists to go far beyond that which their home public would support. Need it be said, that the effects on foreign public opinion were possibly deflationary? An imaginable end to the Cold War may lie in neither victory nor defeat, in neither accommodation nor reconciliation, but in the development of more, newer, and different quarrels. Hostility of Protestant and Catholic faded out in Europe when the hostility of French, Germans, Spaniards, and other nationalities came to be more important. It is a problem for the psychiatrist and sociologist to answer if they can. Is it possible that semantics of war-causing quarrels can be superseded by anything other than different quarrels? Attention-free civilization is imaginable. Given the characteristics of most present-day cultures, it is scarcely more than merely imaginable. If, within the limits of practical possibility, one were to list the hypothetical requirements for an end of the Cold War, the following might stand forth. 1 general war, leading to the destruction of either the communist or non-communist systems, or 2. Prolongation of the present Cold War atmosphere until new and more interesting quarrels arise which make the present ones obsolete, or 3. Reconciliation of the communist and anti-communist systems by some process not now imaginable, along the general lines of Franklin D. Roosevelt's grand design, or 4 collapse of all major civilizations under impact of fissionable and thermonuclear weapons, or 5. Gradual erosion of the anti-communist world and an eventual communist victory by sustained communist successes short of war, or the alternative of gradual erosion of the communist world and the creation of a constitutionalist and libertarian probability of victory, also without the outbreak of general war. It would be a brave and foolish man who would say which of these the world should expect, but it would be a stupid staff officer who did not anticipate at least one of them 
and who did not, as a military officer or government official, do his best to bring about victory in a form which his side could define, recognize, welcome, and achieve. The Seven Small Wars The foregoing extensive discussion of the Cold War has been included because it explains a great deal of the apparent contradictoriness, irresoluteness, and uncertainty of the small wars which have occurred since the end of World War II. The seven small wars fall into a threefold pattern. If China is excluded, China is taken up in the next section. This is the first pattern. Five of the seven wars were Asian struggles against the Western powers. Korea, Indochina, the Philippines, in which communist Filipinos regard the United States as their ultimate enemy, Malaysia, and Indonesia. In Korea and Indochina, the struggle came to be communist-controlled. In Indonesia, the struggle ended in a nationalist victory. In the Philippines, the struggle degenerated into petty skirmishes between a native constitutional government and communist extremists. One war was an expression of European nationalism on the soil of Asia with the creation of the new state of Israel. The third category is, of course, the special case presented by the Indian-Pakistani fighting, which is a struggle between Asian nationalisms without much intervention from either European colonialism or communism. The most important of these wars were the five in Korea, Indochina, the Philippines, Malaya, and Indonesia. The Israeli struggle appears pretty well settled as a fighting war, and the India-Pakistan issue appears not to be one which will lead to a general war between those two countries. The predominant group of wars shows variations of the same components in different quantities. Each was a reaction to the fall of Japan's short-lived East Asian military empire. Each involved partial or complete resistance to economic affiliation with the capitalist world. Each had an ingredient, though these differed in stress and direction, of local Asian nationalism. Except for Indonesia, each eventually became a part of the worldwide front between communism and anti-communism. These wars deserve consideration one at a time for their Psi War content. The Special Case of China None of the wars mentioned above was as bloody or as tragic as the Chinese Civil War between Communists and Nationalists, which ended with a red victory in 1949. The China situation is too complicated to be summed up in a single paragraph. The political, economic, and propaganda components on each side of that war are as yet not completely assessed. For instance, one of the major factors in the defeat of the nationalists consisted of the withdrawal of the Japanese managers and technicians from China, as well as of those Japanese troops who had been maintaining a degree of law and order in Manchuria and North China. This withdrawal was not only sought by such progressives in the State Department as John Stewart Service and Alger Hiss, it was also enthusiastically endorsed by conservatives such as General Weidemeyer, who shipped the Japanese out, and General MacArthur, who received them. No American, right-wing or left-wing, seriously proposed replacing the Japanese with United States or United Nations personnel until the nationalists had enough trainees to manage a modern, capitalist China. By withdrawing the Japanese, the nationalists and the Allies destroyed the political and economic system under which the nationalists proposed to operate, and were then astonished when the nationalists met defeat. In the China policy situation, the contribution of communist covert propaganda within the United States in preventing aid to Chiang in the crucial years of 1947, 1948, and 1949 should not be overlooked. 
neither should it be overestimated nor considered the sole determinant of events which took place within china Sai war in the indonesian dutch war a rapid and talented command of propaganda was shown by the indonesians in their retention of power in the face of a dutch landing in the islands in nineteen forty five and forty six the indonesians were readily alert to the necessity for obtaining u s british australian and other foreign sympathizers they opened propaganda offices abroad and did an excellent job of presenting their own case while indonesian combat propaganda against the netherlands troops is not recorded as having had much effect on dutch morale their use of global strategic propaganda to support a local war was excellent netherlands ships were refused docking and loading services by australian stevedores american press and public sympathy ran very largely in the indonesian favor indonesian acceptance of the political concept united states of indonesia which was dropped as soon as independence was won may have played a significant role in winning american sympathy dutch military and strategic propaganda in their war with indonesians suffered from uncertainty on the dutch side as to the goals of the war the suspicion that a netherlands victory would be nothing more than a triumph of colonial capitalism and the insistent interference of united nations and united states observers the dutch were never able to put across the point that indonesia deserved its nationhood from imperial japanese sponsorship and the netherlands withdrawal was dictated as much by the practical necessity of reconciling world opinion and balancing the home budget as by the militarily untenable nature of the dutch enterprise the philippine war against the hooks by contrast the republic of the philippines faced a very serious military situation in the challenge of the hook armies tough communist troops concentrated in central luzon who waged a cruel and bitter war rather like the struggle of the irish republicans against the black and tans by nineteen fifty the philippine government was in a serious position there was at least the remote possibility that if the government continued to falter the city of manila might have fallen to a communist coup in this situation ramon magsese as secretary of defense developed some of the most provocative and audacious anti-guerrilla operations of the post-war period to meet the communist claim that the struggle was one of the landless against the rich he offered all surrendered hooks resettlement in a new land project he visited the project himself frequently enough to make sure it remained a valuable demonstration area to allow the common people to help the government without their suffering from communist reprisals against themselves or their families he disseminated secret methods whereby the people could communicate with the government forces he established a psychological warfare office under major jose crisol this office was doing as good a job of tactical psi war with leaflets mimeographs loudspeakers light planes and other field and headquarters equipment as any army installation which the author has seen most of the doctrine and procedures for the operation of the office were american but the content of the materials was filipino catholicism filipino patriotism malayan nativism and peasant common sense were some of the factors used to underscore the philippine army's appeals in the following three years the hooks shrank seriously although the danger could not be said to have been eliminated altogether indochina and political warfare with devotion often with heroism frequently with brilliance the french military forces in indochina fought a communist captured nationalist movement known as the viet minh they fought despite the accompaniments of a wretched and vacillating home policy incredibly poor psychological relationships with the native elite 
and security situations which pass all american belief one vietnamese recently told the author that the pro-communist viet minh soldiers fought as long as they could against the french and then came back to french territory to eat good food visit their families rest and relax before returning to the field to murder more french sentries blow up more french patrols or attack more french outposts it ill becomes an american to criticize the french for their policy in indochina since it was by virtue of a u s strategic decision and a u s logistical action that indochina was turned first from japanese hands into the hands of the british in the south and the chinese nationalists in the north the british did not care much about the local situation the particular chinese nationalists in northern indochina were mildly sympathetic with local nationalism but chiefly preoccupied with stealing everything that could be put on a truck after this ill-fated liberation the americans then assisted the french in transporting forces back to indochina this was after much of the u s press and many u s leaders had indicated their disapproval of french colonialism and had given indirect but powerful encouragement to viet minh's rebellion against the french having helped foul up the situation for the french hopelessly the united states then observed their return a return which was definitely though indirectly made possible only by u s aid to france with uncertainty and disquiet it took the americans four years to decide that they were on the french side and even then they were not very much on the french side neither were the french the french side was an indefinable amalgam of old-fashioned french colonialism the membership of three small asian states in a french union and anti-communism the french made the mistake which the americans repeated when they invited the chinese communist general wang shuchan to new york to defame the united states through the courtesy of the united states government or when they tried dealing with the chinese communists fighting them dealing with them and fighting with them again when the french finally decided to seek an all-out military victory against the communists they set up local governments which they themselves promptly dishonored giving them neither prestige nor authority enough to combat the communist menace in local asian terms that the french should have held the asian anti-communist front under these strange political circumstances is a credit to france the indo-chinese war has been dirty discouraging it is often verged upon the hopeless the french have been criticized by americans in the early period of the reoccupation of indochina for not turning the country over to communist nationalists lock stock and barrel later the americans criticized the french because the french did not annihilate the same communist nationalists whom the americans had previously lauded in the end dien bien phu and geneva were the inevitable concomitants of panmunjom once we made peace the french had to make an equally bad peace too the United States was adroit enough to obtain the immense psychological leverage of getting the Korean War recognized as a UN war. The Indo-Chinese War was not made a UN war, even though it was the same enemy who was being fought. Asian communists, underwritten by Peking and guaranteed by Moscow, in each case. Amazing though it may seem, practical psychological warfare was almost completely neglected by the French until the Americans supplied the French with printing facilities for French Annamite leaflets in 1950. By 1952, the French had assigned staff officers to carry out psychological warfare responsibilities and were making a serious effort to link up with the other anti-communist forces in East Asia for the purpose of obtaining psychological warfare know-how a considerable improvement in tactical psychological warfare was made between 1950 and 1952. The strategic psychological warfare position of the French in the area must be referred back to 
the Battle of the Probabilities, mentioned earlier in this chapter. So long as French, Americans, and Annamites all feel that a French defeat is quite probable, and say so, both publicly and privately, it will be difficult for the French to make the Indo-Chinese believe that Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos are here to stay as French-protected and anti-communist nations. Malaya and the MRLA The MRLA, or Malaysian Races Liberation Army, is a Chinese communist guerrilla army operating in the jungles of Malaya. Malaya, minus the island of Singapore, which is a separate crown colony to itself, has been constituted in the post-war period as a federation of Malay sultanates. The British have talked a great deal about the self-government of Malaya, the eventual end of their own rule, and the progress of the people. Everything, or almost everything, which the British say is true, except for the fundamental fact that the Chinese in Malaya can, under British rule, enjoy everything except life, purpose, and honor. What are life, purpose, and honor in basic human terms? They are the rights to belong to something, to be a part of history, to make one's own world move, to be a human being superior to other human beings, to be vain, to be proud, to be self-sacrificing. After years of war against the Chinese communist guerrillas, who have small components of Malayans and Indians with them, the British have not yet found a single British brigadier or major general of the Chinese race. The world at large on the anti-communist side has yet to hear of a Chinese Malayan hero who served mankind by falling martyr to the communist terror, or by emerging as victor in valiant heroic combat. The Chinese in Malaya, as the author has observed at first hand, are probably more prosperous than any other Chinese have ever been anywhere in the world. Under capitalism today, the Chinese communities in Malaya have achieved a degree of wealth, health, and education, which communist China will be remarkable to have achieved if it survives and succeeds for the next hundred years. Does this not give the lie to the great communist myth concerning Asia, the myth accepted by many Western politicians, intellectuals, and newspaper men? That the struggle between communism and anti-communism is a struggle for living standards? That the issue is an issue of who will provide the best livelihood? On the pro-communist side in Malaya, Chinese who are not religious and who are not known for their practicality and secularism struggle for the chance to go forth and suffer to serve in an army with bad medical service and no pensions, to face an almost certain death in the jungle, to lose life and property, which they could keep on the British side, in order to gain that other kind of life, life with honor and purpose, on the communist side. The British, meanwhile, progress, no doubt. In many respects, the British administration in Singapore and Malaya are more enlightened than some of the local governments in the United States. But whatever the reason, they do not seem to belong to the Chinese who live there, or even to the Malays. They are governments for the people, and not, so far as the local people seem to judge, governments of the people. Is it reasonable to ask, in the mid-1950s, that decent British officers and civil servants convert themselves into apocalyptic fanatics of a weird composite Asian nationalism? Can the British make revolution in Malaya when they are rather fatigued with their own labor revolution at home? Can we Americans, who have made nothing, absolutely nothing, out of the heroism and romance and tradition that might have been reconstituted as the ancient kingdom of Ryokyu, Okinawa, be in a position to chide the British for not doing that which we ourselves do not undertake? The communist is strong, bad magic. 
In North Korea, it created officers in an unreasonably short time, developed fanatics while we were trying to develop gentlemen, and came close to defeating us in the perilous week of the Pusan perimeter. In China, soldiers of whom many Americans despaired when they fought on the nationalist side became desperate assault infantry under communist training. The timid and quarrelsome Annamites, who had given the French so little trouble before communism organized them, fought like leopards once they read Marx, Lenin, Mao Zedong, and Ho Chi Minh. Was this why the communists were able to continue in Malaya? No one has ever accused the British Army of lacking ingenuity. The forces who developed desert raiders, coastal commandos, air-dropped banditti, and a plethora of amusing, shocking, and audacious innovations cannot be accused of a lack of imagination. The British did use psychological warfare in Malaya strategically, tactically, in the field, in the cities, by radio, and by print. When Carlton Green was directing the British Psy War effort from the headquarters of that redoubtable gentleman, Malcolm MacDonald, British Commander General for Southeast Asia, he even resorted to the device of writing individual letters to known communists and leaving these letters scattered through the jungle. The British used white propaganda, black propaganda, gray propaganda. If there had been a purple propaganda, they certainly would have tried it. Alex Josie came close to it when he shocked the planters in Malaya by delivering socialist speeches over the Malay radio in an attempt to pull the left wing off the communist bird. Sir Henry Gurney, the High Commissioner of the Federation, who was murdered in 1952, was a veteran of irregular warfare. He had faced the Zionist terrorists in Jerusalem and was a man without fear. His approach to the problem of confronting communism was hopelessly sane. The communists were offering young Chinese the intoxication of craziness, of a mad and heroic righteousness, to justify the misspending of their lives. Sir Henry's answer was decency, goodness, security, prosperity, authority, liberty under law. He offered everything except glamour, terror, inspiration, and romance. Everything except the chance to join the British side. What kind of British side? A British side which, like the communist side, would welcome the makers of the future, the builders of the next civilization, the arbiters of history. The communists have presented a high bid against the U.S. and Britain, as well as the other Western powers. We have not yet overbid them. The high bid is the opportunity to join, to belong, really to be equal, not just legally equal, and, above everything, to share, to struggle, and to work under conditions of heroism for a common goal. The right to join. The West has lost a lot of the Cold War in Asia because the communist side could be joined and the Western side could not be joined. There is no American party in India, but there is a communist party. There is no anti-communist army to which cadres of men from either Soviet-occupied or Soviet-free territories can be made welcome. There is no command point for the anti-communist struggle. There is the promise of immense U.S. help, even the promise of British, Colombian, Ethiopian, and other help, for Korea or other Koreas. Is there much willingness to be helped? Is there any way that we can let ordinary Asians in on our side? The top levels of this problem are, of course, political. They must be solved in the light of a U.S. home public which eschews crusades and dreads adventures. At a lower level, the problem becomes one for the military staffs of the future. How can the United States, the United Nations, or other anti-communist forces 
recruit native leaders and native followers under circumstances of dignity and honor? How can we either learn to love the allies we have or find allies whom we can love? Until then, much of the spiritual and organizational advantage in Asia will fall to the communists. We may have the better ideals, but if people who are determined to illuminate their own lives with the splendor of risky, heroic, or self-sacrificing action, and who insist on doing something desperate, somewhere, somehow, so as to relieve the ignominy, poverty, and monotony of their existences, cannot learn how to join us, they will perforce join the other side." A slight or even a substantial increase in economic welfare in the Asian states seems to the author to favor a sharp increase in communist strength. When people are desperately poor or sick, they cannot worry about causes. When they become moderately well-off, well enough off to know that they are despised, poor by our standards, ignorant by our standards, then the point of psychological frenzy comes in. Propaganda Techniques in the Seven Wars Neither in the Chinese Civil War, nor in the seven other wars listed, has there been much refinement of propaganda techniques over World War II. As a matter of fact, it took the Korean War two years to come up to the standards of Normandy. It is amazing how many propaganda techniques had become lost arts between 1945 and 1950. The author himself flew under the Chinese Communist forces along the Han River in March 1951, when the voice plane in which he rode as an observer had to hug the valley bottoms in order to get its message to the Chinese ground forces past the sound of its own propellers. Instead of ingenious, up-to-the-minute gadgets to dispense leaflets, the author joined the young officers in the plane in throwing the leaflets out of the plane door by hand. He thought ruefully about the leaflet bombs and leaflet dispensers which had been used in Europe and in Burma. And when he returned unharmed to Tegu, he submitted one more red-hot memorandum recommending the obvious. The strategic Psi War self-limitations imposed by the United States on the United States in the Korean War were also crippling. The United States did not desire anything which a professional soldier would recognize as victory. U.S. opinion was divided as to whether all of Korea should be liberated by U.N. forces. At the policymaking level, certainly among our allies, there was pretty general agreement to remain at peace with the supply dumps and high command of the Chinese government forces in Manchuria and China, while seeking the forward echelons of those forces in Korea. The United States would not accept defeat, nor would it seek a decisive victory, because victory might have involved the risk of war. Under these conditions, it must be pointed out that General MacArthur had the first and only Psi War establishment ready to operate the moment the Korean War began. Colonel J. Woodall Green ably managed the Tokyo headquarters for most of the period of the Korean War. The Department of the Army showed great good judgment in bringing back Brigadier General Robert McClure, who had been Eisenhower's Psi War Chief in Europe, to the new Department of the Army's Psi War Establishment, which was created on 15 January 1951 in the Pentagon, as part of Special Staff, United States Army, with the title of Office of the Chief of Psychological Warfare, OCPW. When General McClure departed for Tehran, he was succeeded at OCPW by Brigadier General William Bullock. The last period of the Korean War found Korean local Psi War at the headquarters of 8th U.S. Army in Korea, EUSAK, under the command of Colonel Donald Hall, who had probably seen more continuous Psi War service than any other officer in the U.S. Army. End of chapter 14. End of section 25.